Hello and welcome to the Kick in the Creatives podcast, hosted by myself, Sandra Busby, and my fellow creative, Tara Roskell, offering you interviews, inspiration, motivation, and a gentle prod in the right direction. And for lots more information, challenges, and other useful tools to help you get creating, you can go to www.kickinthecreatives.com. And of course, this is where you can also find today's show notes. Enjoy the show. Today we are talking to Jackie Penn, aka Penny Appleton, the sweet romance author. And I say we, it turned out it was just me. And Tara, we did miss you, but you couldn't come on, could you? Because we had some technical issues. Yeah, so what did you talk about? How did the interview go? Oh, she is so lovely. She goes into real depth about, you know, how she goes about self-publishing her books and, you know, her, you know. Actually, I'm not going to tell you. You've just got to listen. It's a long interview, obviously, because you weren't there to um, keep me in To bring you in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's well, well worth it. So enjoy. So thanks so much for coming on. And um, I'd love to know about your early career, first of all, before you became a writer. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Firstly, for having me on your programme. That's a real privilege. And I think when one looks at one's early career, it's important to know how old you are and when you were born and things. Maybe your readers will resonate with, with that, your listeners will resonate with that. So I'm 71 and I was born in 1947. And... I have a very old auntie who's recently passed away. She was 96. But she said before the Second World War, there were very few opportunities, careers for women. And things like she was only ever allowed to wear a skirt in her accountancy office. Wearing trousers were completely no-no. But after the war, so in 1947, people really wanted to try and make society better. Um, She'd been wearing trousers in her dugout, being a searchlight operator, Many, many men had not come back, sadly, but those jobs went to women. So um, I was the lucky recipient of school milk, vitamins, um, orange juice, grammar schools and free university education, which makes a difference, I think. And now my generation have got pensions and the national health. And so it was a lucky time to grow up, I think. Um, I think I've always been a teacher. When I was little... I used to teach, (laughs) I used to go hang around at a riding school and I ended up leading small fat ponies around with small fat children on. (laughs) It was was somebody who who would be saying, okay, heels down and sit up straight and hands on the neck, well done. You know, so I think um, my father was a teacher and my grandma was a teacher. So I think I was naturally a teaching sort of person. And interesting, both my children, Joanna Penn, who's... um, J.F. Penn, the writer, and my son, Roderick Penn, they're both, as well as doing their their careers as writers and photographers, they're also teachers. And um, maybe it's something, if you love to learn, then you love to teach because the two things go hand in hand. So I became a teacher and um, I wanted first to be an an actress, but my dad said he wouldn't pay for me to go to drama school. <laughs> and he said, okay, if you want to be an actress, I'll pay for you to go and do teach training college. And then if you're good enough to be an actress afterwards, at least I know you can always pay the rent and buy you dinner. 
So um, that's what I was. I went to teach, teach training college. And I loved teaching. I was a teacher for 40 years, really, in, in different forms. Started off in the East End of London, teaching English with kids who couldn't read and doing it through drama. So we'd do improvisation and then we'd write that into a script and then they'd read the script and we'd record it on tape and things and enter it for radio competitions, things like that. Then my husband and I moved from London to West Somerset, Minehead, and he was the head of art and I was the head of drama. And we did some, as well as normal teaching, did some amazing productions together, which was a lot of fun. Um, biggest was about 250 kids in a production of Oliver with a full orchestra, mm. two full casts, um, a dog, a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then we did lots of other productions like that. Then I became immensely creative and had babies. So um, I had five years out of teaching, but I became an examiner for Oxford O-Level. And I taught an epileptic little girl who was homeschooled. After that, what did we do after that? We moved to Oxfordshire and I taught at the West Oxfordshire College, Technical College and did... English GCSE for engineers and things. Sadly, then my marriage broke up, but um, I had some friends who were teaching at the University of Malawi in Central Africa, and they said, <laughs> come to Malawi, it's like Scotland, only hot. <laughs> and so um, the children and I went to Malawi in Central Africa, and I taught, first of all, English as a foreign language to engineers who were then coming to the UK um, so they did a first degree in Malawi. Amazing, really. So these were Malawian youngsters whose first language would be a tribal language. Second language would be Chichewa, which is the Malawian national language. Third language would be English. And they were doing a degree in their third language. Um, um, amazing. And the British Council sponsored some of them to come to the UK to do engineering degrees to go back. And then while I was doing that, I was very lucky that I started to be involved with their management degree. So I was teaching communication skills on the management module and then psychology, which I enjoyed very much. Came back to the UK with the children and had eight months on the dole because when you come back from overseas, nobody wants you really. Your experience is not very relevant, but it was good in that I was able to get them settled into primary school and be around for that. And then my darling auntie, Auntie Joy, the 96-year-old, um, she lent me the money to do a master's degree. So I went to Bristol University and did a master's in management with the idea of moving out of teaching because it's hard to pay for two kids to go through university yeah. Uh, on a teacher's salary. Mm. So there I was, did the master's degree in management, went back into teaching, but then very luckily got a trainee consultant job with the Engineering Employers Federation, working with British Aerospace and Rolls-Royce in Bristol. So did management communication courses and that kind of thing. Did three years there. Um, meanwhile, the children were gone from primary and on to secondary. Then saw an advertisement for the Hewlett-Packard company, Make Printers. Yeah, yeah. And they've got a, a place in, in Bristol, Filton. So I moved there as the training manager for Hewlett-Packard Labs and then eventually the site training manager. And then HP is a wonderful company, just fabulous opportunities. 
Then I did European consultancy with senior managers, then got offered a job in America. So went to the U.S., first of all, in Boise in Idaho on a big change project, then Corvallis in Oregon. Children were both at university. No, Rod was with me in the U.S. then. Um, Joe was at university. Then San Diego for five years. Oh, wow, that was great. And from there, that was a traveling job. So the projects were change management with senior managers going through radical change. And um, I was working in a team with them. So did that up until I was 55, then retired from HP, went to New Zealand where Joanna had gone, became a teacher of English again. So you are so well-travelled. I mean, most people don't oh, do that well, in a well, lifetime. Well, yeah. And, you know, um, I sometimes I, talk to women's groups and they go, oh, I'm home with babies and yeah. I'm never going to get back in my career again. And I said, look, my most fabulous opportunity came when I was 47. Yeah, that's tr- so true. So I think people often feel it's too late and it's never too late. No, it's not. It's all a journey and you watch for the opportunity. I always say to people, look, it's like you're on your surfboard out on the ocean and you're watching over your shoulder for the wave and you have to keep paddling and you have to keep your skills up. And one day the wave comes. But if you're not ready, then it goes past you. Yeah, that's such a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Can so just... then from there, how old am I now? 71, 55 to 71, taught English in New Zealand, marked GC, um, national, New Zealand English papers, came back to the UK. Yeah, I was, I'm in New Zealand and Joanna's there. Then she and her husband moved back to UK, don't they? <laughs> so she's in London. My son is in Edinburgh and I'm in New Zealand with the dog. So right. I waited for a bit and then I came back um, to the UK too and thought, I'm not following the kids anymore. <laughs> Got to find somewhere to settle. So I settled here. and Which um, is where? Bristol. Bristol. Yeah. Right. Right. Very nice. Great. I love Bristol. That's where I brought the uh, Joan Rod up. Yeah. And um, so got a flat in Bristol and then because I'm pretty active thought what am I going to do now and the other thing is the pension is nice but it isn't enough to do lovely travelly holidays so I started marking uh, GCSE papers again but that's very hard work and hurts my eyes so Joe said why don't you write and I'll help you publish it because she's a um J.F. Penn and Joanna Penn is she's an indie publisher. She was a pioneer in indie publishing. She's been doing that for ten years. So she said, "If you want to write something, then I'll help you publish it." So that's when I started writing. So before we get on to that, obviously all of that time before, had you never considered it in during that time? Is it literally what Joanna said that made you think, "Oh, well, perhaps I can," or or is it something uh, well, you thought of in the past? I've always written. So I write journals and I'm a great letter writer. So when I was in Africa and in New Zealand, I was writing letters to my mum. And in those, you're developing your writing, aren't you? But when you're actually teaching, it's truly hard to do stuff like that because, you know, if I've, if I've got, I don't know, six classes per week of GCSE students, that's a bucket load of marking. Mm. So you're reading and reading youngsters' work, you're correcting. Your brain is not creative at the end of that. No. You're knackered. Yeah. So that's when I did some painting. Um, but I'm back here now, so I'm not teaching anymore. 
and I'm not painting. And then you, on your, one of your questions, it said you also became a painter for a while. What sort of things did you paint? Yeah, well, obviously, as you know, I'm a I'm a painter, so I was really intrigued. Yes, that's what I do. I'm an artist, so an oil painter actually. And I was intrigued when I, I realised that you um, you painted. Of course, I'm interested to know what you did <laughs> and whether you that's still do nice. it. Well, I'm glad that you're a painter. Yeah. Well, I think a creative usually has many many dimensions, and some of them are more oneself like you're obviously very strongly visual so you you interpret your creativity through seeing things and then painting them and um well I love writing as well I don't know if they're the two go go together but one one you paint with words and one you know you paint one picture with words and one with paint don't you just a different way of doing it Yeah. yeah yeah so I painted landscape but I'm a I'm, I paint in acrylics and I'm very messy. I throw paint and um, it's very therapeutic. <laughs> so when I was, I started when I was in San Diego yeah. and I had a house with a patio. So I used to cover the patio with plastic and the job was very frustrating because I had to work in HR and I'm quite creative. So I don't particularly like the rules, but we were having to do a downsizing program and I had to be involved in that. So I used to paint at the weekends in order to let out the inner me. So I'd cover the patio with plastic, put canvases down and then throw paint. It was lovely. Several glasses of wine, some great (laughs) music and throw paint. And then I'd go to bed and then come down in the morning and go, Oh, right. Okay. then. (laughs) And some of them were brilliant, but they were not painters like painting. They were, they happened. They were happening. They were express. Yeah. Expressions. Yeah. 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 So, so circling back to what you said about Joanna, who we've interviewed before on our podcast, anyone who's listening, um, that was episode 20 and it's well worth listening because Joanna, I mean, she's adorable, first of all, um, and so enthusiastic. So she, she obviously put you up to the idea of writing a book. What were your first thoughts then when she, when she said that? Well, with painting, I don't know about how you find this, but it's an expensive hobby. Yeah. (laughs) So canvases are expensive, paint's expensive. And if you chucked it around like I did, um, you end up with a lot of canvases that you then have to paint white again and start all over. People say to me, I love the texture on your paintings. And I don't tell them there are actually 12 paintings under (laughs) that one. And because my paintings are being acrylic, you can uh, you can put texture in. And occasionally, I've had an exhibition. They're expensive to put on, and then obviously people might buy you know a painting, and you might say, "Well, I sold three at one hundred and twenty pounds each." But actually, when I added it up, it's two thousand pounds I spent over the last year doing painting. So. I loved painting, but I don't do it anymore because it's expensive and messy and I live in a flat. But Joe said, well, you know, um, if you self-publish, and this is, you've got it somewhere on your on your thingy here, why, why do I self-publish instead of go for a publisher? As I said to you before, I am not Hilary Mantel. Therefore, <laughs> I have not spent 12 years working on Wolf Hall. I love to write and I write, but it's very nice to hold a book in your hand that is published and with Amazon and with Joe showing me how to do it, we've made a bit of money. It's about Penny Appleton, who's a sweet romance writer, which was originally Joe and me together, me writing it and her editing and smoothing and making it polished and publishing them for me. She brings in about 200 pounds a month. Yeah. 
and has done for the last couple of years. So I keep that in a separate account and use yeah. that for promoting Penny Appleton. So there's a satisfaction of I'm writing, but I've got four books on my bookshelf now, which are mine. And and they're paying. I've had a little holiday on Penny so far. Going on to Penny then, because mm. obviously a lot of people are going to be thinking, well, who's Penny? Yes. So explain this. This is your pen name, isn't it? Your, yes. Your, 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 um, and what I love to know is what made you decide to have a pen name and not to use your real name? Because <laughs> a, a lot of authors do this, don't they? Um, when you start a new creative stream... yeah. And your daughter publishes it. It might be, I don't know, I, mean, I think we're not supposed to swear. It might be crap. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, you so, don't so, say that. Yeah, it yeah. might be rubbish. <laughs> and if it's rubbish, I don't want to have Jackie Penn written on it for the rest of my life. It's gone on the internet and there it is forever. Yeah. yeah. And it's rubbish. Well, you know, when you're first getting going, um, Joe made sure that none of them are rubbish, actually. she. <laughs> my first one... Uh, which is called Love Second Time Around, which is a lot about, uh, uh, you ask about whether it's autobiographical. Yes, there's a lot of me in that book. And um, she said, Mum, you know, this is brilliant, well done, fabulous. It's 95,000 words. And since we're writing in the sweet romance category, um, it's got to be about 50. So I've edited. I said, you've cut my baby in half. (laughs) (laughs) And she had. It had gone down to 50,000 words. She kept all the good bits. She said there are some gems in here. And, you know, because she's an experienced writer, there was also a lot of stuff which, as she said, was heads talking to each other or Mm. aimless description. Um, So the idea was really that I had fun. We might have a little bit of money from it. And I wouldn't have somebody saying, oh, I saw your book, Sweet Romance. Yeah, yeah. What? (laughs) And so Penny Appleton was, I turned it round the other way and made it Penny Jackson. So my name is Jackie Penn. So I turned it round the other way and made it Penny Jackson. But there is already a Penny Jackson. So whenever you invent a name for yourself, you have to go out there and check there isn't one already. Yeah. And when I said to Jo about Penny Jackson, she said, well, since you've decided to do Sweet Romance, and the thing about Sweet Romance is that I don't like sex and violence, so I wouldn't read something like Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, God, I wouldn't waste my time. (laughs) Well, actually, I did read a bit of it because it's well written. And Uh, for a lot of people... I've heard the complete opposite. I've heard people say it's terrible. So, yeah, I'm interested to know what your take on it is. uh, I'm not interested. I don't like the content. But for for many women, it was an easy read. It was an interesting concept, psychological. Logically, so, but when you look at something like that, no, that's not my, I'm not my interest. Um, I don't like violence, so I've read one of Game of Thrones, but I would never watch it as a series, and I don't enjoy reading those. So, when you look at Sweet Romance, it is about relationships, and it it has a happy ending. So, if you look at two of my well, my favourite authors would be Jane Austen. If you look at Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, two fabulously written sweet romances. Yeah. So they're my models, really. I I like Nora Roberts and Danielle Steele and people like that. Mm. But Jane Austen is really, she's got meaty issues. She writes in a particular time. But it's 
there's no, you know, it stops at the bedroom door. There's no swearing and you end up with a happy ending. You don't know where they go after that. You can almost make your own ending up then, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. And lots of people said, oh, why doesn't someone write another series of Pride and Prejudice? I think they probably have, actually, of what happened after that. But I I think, you know, Jane Austen did did fine with just what she's doing. So Mm. Sweet Romance for me is tends to be older characters. Yeah. So in the first one, which is Love First Time Around, Maggie is like me. She's retired. And um, she meets somebody who she loved when they both used to work together, but he was married. So she stayed well out of his way. But they meet again when they're older. And it's now the issues of can they get together because he's got a family and lives in America, daughters and sons and things, not his wife anymore. And she's got a family here in the UK. How do you manage that? Is it possible? Are both of you too cynical? So that explores all of that. So, so how did you come up with that storyline then? So obviously you decided you're going to write a book. What is this partly picked from experience, your own life experience, or is it literally you've just kind of come up with that story and decided to write no, it? No, it's, it's definitely autobiographical experience, really. Right. I think the most, most vital... Well, you, you take something that you really are interested in yeah and then when you create those characters who are not you but you give them bits of your experience they come alive in their own right Mm. the one I'm writing at the moment which is just me um it's called love at the Summerfield stables well it's based in a, a stables in the country that teaches disabled children to ride and I did that so there's a big big chunk of me but the two characters who are in it um, Claire, who's the, the person who runs these tables, and David, who's a veteran returning, he's an amputee. What happens between them, when it gets going, they turn into themselves. They are not me now. They're things coming up. I keep thinking, where did that come from? That's not me. But the story, I think, is a fascinating one. And so I'm writing it, and they and they talk themselves. But lots of bits are autobiographical. The, in the third one, what's that one called? I can't remember. But there's a character in it called Lizzie. Well, when I was in New Zealand, I had the most wonderful dog. His name was Bobby. He was a German Shepherd Cross. And I had him for 12 years. And he was my best mate ever. Well, he's in book three. And he, that book is dedicated to him, actually, because he was a best canine mate. So I think that autobiographical things, when you take a bit of your personal life and put it into a book, uh, comes alive. That's what makes the writing vital. Like with Jane Austen in Sense and Sensibility, I think the movie with Emma Thompson is, in fact, more powerful for me than the the story now, you know, because Jane Austen's writing is quite long-winded because it's not our time but there's a scene where she's riding along on a beautiful horse Eleanor with um Hugh Grant who's in the character I can't remember and and she she says he says something about his living and what he's going to do and she said we can't even earn our living and she was talking that was Jane Austen's life she was trying to keep her family by her writing but in her time he mostly had to write and publish it under someone else's name because mm. only men's books would be allowed to. So, you know, there's lots of autobiographical graphical stuff in there. And what about your characters then? Are any of them based on people that you know or can't you say? <laughs> 
I think you pick up little bits of lots of people. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. You know, there's a very stuffy character in the book I'm working on at the moment. And um, his name's Quentin Ogilvy, and he's a land agent. Yeah. And when you say his name, I get, I, I've always been a country girl. I love the country, but I've met lots of nice people working with horses and a load of snotty rat bags as well. And Quentin is a snotty rat bag. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to writing then about your own more painful experiences um, yeah. in your books, do you find that quite therapeutic in a way? Mm, yes. I try not to put too much painful stuff in it because if someone, what I feel is life, life is pretty tough, isn't it? And if I get into bed, I think, oh, it's nine o'clock. I'm a bit knackered. I'll get into bed and read a nice book. I do not want angst. <laughs> I, want, I want a book that I've turned the pages. And when I put it down, I think, oh, that was nice. It was real. Yeah. She was a real character. And I can go to sleep now with those lovely images. So I don't put, there's nothing horrible in my books. Sweet Romance is not about that. It's yeah. about um, real life. But mostly it focuses on, it's got some drama. Mm. Like this one I'm writing at the moment, and this actually happened. We had a pony who went into a ditch. So she was stuck in a ditch in the mud. And she could have died. It was cold. We had to get her out. But how do you get her out? Because if you get the fire brigade there and they put a sling around her and pull her sideways, you break her legs. We've got to get her up as well as out. And she went into hypothermic shock. So that's in there. So it's quite dramatic. Mm. But it brings Claire and David together. He's an amputee in the mud. He's got the tractor. But how are they going to get the pony out of there? And it's something that cements their attraction for each other because they're both heroes really you know and um so there, there's I don't know where we got to on that one <laughs> sorry <laughs> a bit carried away I'm still writing that editing at the moment it should be well don't tell all don't tell us the end <laughs> no no it's always happy it's always happy yeah no I, I do you know I'm exactly the same whether I watch tv or read a book when I go to bed I have to watch something light-hearted or read something nice yeah. because yeah. I can't do um, I can't do all that either. I, I, I think about it otherwise at night, you yeah. know. I but, think a um, lot of us are like that because mm. someone gets raped in somewhere or other across the other side of the world and it's on the news, smack, just like yeah. that. So you see every all the bad rape, things. murder, natural disaster. So I only watch the news once a day and it's not in the evening and I tend to read the newspaper rather than yeah. watch it live because of course you I, only, I just, only hear the bad stuff as well i mean if they had a good news channel i'm sure that would be just as full if not fuller it's just that that doesn't yeah. get people's attention does it that's the trouble but a good but a good newspaper will always have yeah. good news stuff yeah. too won't it yeah well obviously you know going back to what you how you started you are seriously well traveled um and you oh, I haven't know, i been lucky you, i, I been know lucky? yeah you I mean, really what have. a stunning lucky career it's fantastic mm. So, and I know that you have journaled all of your life. Um, yes. So, do do you find that those experiences in your travels, and particularly those journals, um, useful to refer back to during mm. the writing process? Does it sort of trigger memories for you? It certainly does. Uh, I've, I've got them here. And um, I think Joanna would say the same in her travels. I think she said she's just moving house at the moment. She's got 41 journals, which... 
you know, she looks through occasionally and she's just started a travel blog based on a lot of those travels. I didn't journal so much as I travel because when, again, when you're teaching Mm. workshop during the day, in the evening you want a glass of wine and a lovely dinner and you go to bed because the next day you're teaching again. When you're facilitating with managers, you've got to be 100% there with them. It's their creative process. I used to say to senior managers, look, all of you are like the very best soccer players from your country and you're on the field playing, but I'm a coach. I'm going to watch your performance and I'm going to bring up some of the things that will help you. But to do that, you've got to be creative. So I didn't journal too much in my travels. I tended to journal the angst stuff. Yeah, yeah. So going through divorce and Mm. things about bringing up kids and, you know, the things that you struggle with as a single parent. But I don't write about those. So what were the main challenges then you found um, during the writing process as a beginner? (laughs) I guess I'm it's unfair because I have this secret weapon who's called Joanna Penn. (laughs) (laughs) She's just been fabulous. But the other thing she's done is um, she writes nonfiction as well, you know. So she takes what she teaches and then she makes it into a book. So I'm looking now at the successful author mindset, which she helped me with a lot. Um, Whenever I got stuck, she'd say, well, try this bit here try that bit there and and she actually dedicated the successful author mindset to me i shall read you the dedication so lovely says dedicated to my mum jackie penn for her unfailing positivity throughout my upbringing my can-do attitude and proactive mindset stem from her belief in me and her support of my journey i love you mum oh that's absolutely lovely isn't how, that, I mean, how gorgeous is that? How utterly gorgeous uh, yeah, is that? Yeah. But she, what she does is she's very clever. She's got both sides of her brain. She yeah. writes thrillers with one side. Yeah. And then she's a publishing, indie publishing expert with the other side. Like I love yeah. her podcast with Orna Ross where yeah. they're talking about indie publishing and how you do it. So I, I said, well, why would I, why would I publish indie? I think you've. You've got it, one of the questions as well. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, what what made you choose the um, indie publishing as opposed to going through the traditional route, I suppose? Well, most most, um, traditional publishers now aren't picking people like me. You've got to write something. It's a bit like painting. Do you find this? I go to an art exhibition and I thought, I think... The people who've won these competitions are really odd. They've got to be way off somehow. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that? Yeah. The people who win competitions or writing competitions. I they... think I think they have to have so much confidence in themselves and what they do and they believe it so much that mm. everyone else does too. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Or they're by so that? weird, they're yeah. different. Yeah. And you and there's been a um I don't think it's a movie now, but the book Lincoln in the Bardo. Have you seen that? No, no, I haven't. I I couldn't read it. You know, I just, I kept, people, yeah, and I think it won a prize, Man Brooker or something like that. Mm. But anyway, I read some of it and thought, weird, I can't, I just don't get this. So um, when I said to Jo about publishing, um, she said, well, take someone like J.K. Rowling. Um, the Harry Potter books all belong to can't even remember who her publishers are now. Anyway, her publishers. Maybe I shouldn't be using an actual author. But when you publish with an established author, um, 
publishing company, they own your manuscripts. So they develop the marketing and the typeface and the, and they tell you, well, we want this in, but we want that out. And, and of course, you know, for each of those books that are sold, they get the majority of the money. So say a book sells for $7.99, how much does the author get of that? About 3p per book. I did not know that. And that's and that's perfectly true. It might not be the exact figures, but that's approximately the ratio. Well, when you do indie publishing, you do all of that stuff yourself. So on Joe's website, she's got um, designers that she uses. Like our covers are designed by um, a particular person, yeah. and she's really good. And there are proofreaders and editors and she's got a whole load of people who she would recommend because she's used them so then as a if I were on my own I would take my manuscript and send it to one of those editors and they would give me some help and I would pay for that a pay a fee and then I would send I would ask JD Smith who's our our designer fabulous here's what I want approximately and she'd send me some some covers so we put together the book and then we publish it via Amazon, and Joe's got all of that in her in her books. And then when you do it, Amazon say let's say you you publish it, you only publish hard copy to order. So if you if you order a Penny Appleton book or a, a JF Penn thriller book, you can have it on Kindle or audio or large print. And if it's in hard copy, it is print to order, so there's no waste, and you would get it for like six ninety nine, and it would be sent to you from Amazon. But it's only that one copy got printed. Whereas with a standard publisher, like Bloomsbury with Harry Potter, or they would publish a run that would go to W. H. Smiths or wherever. So they might publish ten thousand books going worldwide, mm-hmm. and if that author fails, all those books, and I've seen it myself, end up in landfill. They end up in skips. Mm, that, yeah, yeah. So I think that indie publishing, when you, when you um, publish with Amazon and with other author, with other publishers, what happens is it, it changes around the other way. You do the upfront work and there's ways to do it and lots of advice now from indie publishing. And out of, like, let's say, you, you charge less because I'm not a – established writer you know where we are now but say penny appleton sells for 2.99 yeah we get we get two pounds 40 of that such a big difference isn't it it is and it means that you can sell a lot less Mm. in order to actually get you know a nice little check from amazon and i i'm really interested to know this because um i don't know if you know but tara and i have recently um written our children's book together Mm, haven't published it haven't done anything like that yet still um trying to edit it yeah Yeah. (laughs) how difficult i suppose you had joanna but the actual editing and layout process of the book is that something you kind of just handed to someone else or did you know all that because you You can you can do that there are you've got Again, on Joe's website, there are editors, and she's got all the professional people that you would need. Mm. She she did it for me on the first three books. Yeah. And then um, after the third one, so she gave me the fabulous gift of three Penny Appleton books that we co-authored. Yeah. And then she, she said, well, look, it's a bit like, Mum, we've been riding a tandem. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm on the back, you know, she's doing all the steering. I'm doing some pedal power. It's, they're yeah. my stories. Yeah. But um, now you've got to ride your own bike. <laughs> so that, was one, that scary or was oh, that? I'm terribly scary. Yeah. But luckily, after I'd written this fourth one, I now know approximately how long a sweet romance should be. Yeah. Um, she sent me, she sends me so many lovely books like um, Anne Lamott's uh, Instructions on Writing and Life, Bird by Bird. Yeah. That's a fabulous book. She sent me K.M. Wayland, I don't know if it's Wayland or Wyland, Creating Character Arcs. That really helped me. Um, I got Angela Ackerman and Becca, Becca Puglisi's The Emotional Thesaurus because I'll often say, oh, Claire felt really sad. Well, you don't write that. You have to show, not tell. And I had no idea how to show, not tell. But the emotional thesaurus might say, you know, okay, there's the first one, adoration or agitation or amusement, or and it goes right through. And then in each page, it's got a whole list of physical signals yeah. that you would write instead of Claire felt adoring towards David you know so yeah that was fabulous. something like her eyes welled up in yes. and, and stung as but, the you know, tears roll you know it, all that kind of stuff it is it is painting you a picture to avoid cliche haven't yeah, you of course I mean, if you, if you yeah. read that stuff yeah. you go oh she's already used that four times yeah. it's know? like the he he said she said thing isn't yes. it but then yeah. again you don't want to chuck in too many of the other stuff because it's kind of littered with all sorts then it's kind of balanced isn't it and it it's is actually and that is hard. the editing process yeah, yeah. so this one um, she said, send it to me and I'll read it for you. So I know now, I now know a whole lot more. So mm. I sent it to her thinking it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> My darling Joe sent it back with, mum, you can pen publish it just like this. Happy to do that. And here are seven coaching points. So it's taken me another month to go through the coaching points because she's absolutely right. She said, you don't have to do these. I said, no, but Joe, once you know, once your brain goes from, Oh, right. Got it. You can't go back. You know, that's the learning process, isn't it? Yeah. And besides, I said, you know, this is this is not going to be, it, it isn't a great novel. It's a great, lovely little story like the others. It's yeah. a nice holiday read, on a plane read, before you go to bed read. All of them are. So my doctor, who loves them, um, gave the the trilogy which is a you know three three books in a box to her mum for christmas and mum's about the same age as me and her mum loved it but my doctor loves them as well she's a she's a sweet romance person um so but joe's helped me by giving me the coaching points but i'm editing it now and it's nearly ready to go to the proofreader and it should go to the proofreader at 95% and she's going to go through She's on Joe's website as well, yeah. Arnetta Jackson. She's fabulous because she's American and she spots things for me because the, the, the books are going worldwide. Yeah. And if you're working for an American audience too, you've got to be careful of your vocabulary. Yeah, of course. Because, yeah. Like, you know, I've got, I've got horses in mind. So over here we call it um, a horse rug. You know, you put a rug yeah. on a horse. Yeah. She said, well, no, in America, a rug only goes on the floor. This would be a horse blanket. It's kind of like the pants, uh, pants, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
she goes through all of that yeah you know and then there are some that are much more embarrassing that you wouldn't want no (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to do but we we have a thing called a bum bag don't we and they call it a fanny pack don't they (laughs) totally different meaning here and bum bag doesn't work there you know and so um but it's good to have that pointed out so when she goes and things like homey and homely yeah so what's the difference and she said, well, homely is ugly. Think ugly. Oh, really? And homey is kind of warm and sweet, like a beige cardigan. Okay. So so when, um, obviously, through the editing process, there must have been points where perhaps it was Joe that said to you, right, you don't need this bit. This is too long. You need to take this bit out, I presume. Mm. So were, were there bits that you really loved um, that you had to take out because they just weren't working and... and if that happened, how did you feel? How, how was it to press the delete button? Hard. Yeah. <laughs> like I said to you, no, when it was 95,000 words long, yeah. I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to delete 45,000 of them. You but, know, but, but were there any that you thought, I really, really don't want to get rid of that? Or was it all of them you just didn't want to get rid of? I think that when you really, really feel no. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. It doesn't matter who else. I don't know. Maybe it's different. Joe asked me, do you want to publish a book, to have it in your hand, to put it on the shelf, to say, I published this, this is mine. It said, in which case, it doesn't matter if nobody reads it or nobody buys it. This is your success, your creative dimension. That's fabulous. Or do you want to sell any? And I said, I want to sell them because I painted and loved that. But it's very nice when someone says, I loved that painting. I hang it on my wall or someone we've had people write in and say, I loved this book. And there's a bit of it, for example, where uh, I think it's book two. I lived in Boise, Idaho. And there's a place called the Payette Lake, north of Boise, just a beautiful wilderness, the Payette Wilderness. And I set a scene there and this lady came on the website and gave feedback and said, I live there and this is the most fabulous description I've ever read of of the place where I live. You you hit it. You absolutely. I mean, that's a big kicker, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It I is. mean, so I wanted it to be also for the reader, which means that you have to edit for the reader. Yeah. So you would say, well, 95,000 words is quite a thick book and... If you if your reader gets going and then goes, oh, mm, okay, pretty slow, pretty slow, pretty slow, skip another four pages. Okay, pick it up again. Yeah, this is good. Read, read, read. Oh, mm, lost me there. And then they put the book down. You failed, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, so true. So Joe's editing is about learning what it is that makes it good for the reader and that's what I've been doing this last month so I've got the last manuscript here and as you read through it what it is is polishing polishing and polishing to make it easier for the reader so after I've written it now and this is Joe's advice is go away and do something else leave it for a bit come back and read it as if you've never seen it before yeah like with with fresh eyes and and that's the same with painting I think it, mm. you know it, I can get to a point with a painting where I just can't there's I, I can't look at it anymore because I'm just blind and I, I don't know if it's yeah. good and I don't know if it's not and then yes. I can then turn it against the wall and think right I'm not going to look at it for a month and then I can turn it round and think 
that's what's wrong and it's staring me in the face but because when you look at something too long you know for too long or too hard you can almost literally go blind can't you can't see it anymore yeah that's exactly right and also you're on a creative journey aren't you yeah so when you come back to it a month later you have in fact changed that's true the other thing is i think you've got here something about writer's block well fatigue for a creative i'm an introvert so i need a lot of time on my own i need to recharge my batteries through reading and quiet and not being out there other people who are extroverts they recharge their batteries by being with people yeah and if you burn out on your creativity you burn out your synapses in your brain. You know, you have these little connections. I was used to wonder, I, when I was a little girl, I used to lie and look at the sky and you half close your eyes and you see all these little dots going across your eyes. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's your synapses. That's oh. the little electrical signals going across your brain. Is that I, amazing? Yeah. I just thought so, they were kind of some kind of floaty bits of dust. I know, but they're not. They're actually oh, electrical signals. And oh. your synapses are, you fire them. So I, I did quite a lot of interesting reading about this when I was doing psychology because it's the same as teaching. I'd say to my GCSE students, look, we're going to work for 45 minutes and we're going to work hard on this one thing. We're working on Lady Macbeth or something. And these are, let's say, A-level students. And I said, at the end of 45 minutes, we're going to stop and do something else because your synapses are now burnt out. After 45 minutes, you cannot take any more in. You're full up. Yeah. Have you ever gone around a museum and looked at paintings? I'm sure you do a lot. After 45 minutes, you cannot see anymore. No, you need to go and get coffee. <laughs> yeah. Or do something else. Yeah, Sit and read absolutely. newspaper or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And when you change, um, that's why you can... Joe jo said something interesting the other day because I wrote a... The first thing I wrote was non-fiction. And she writes non-fiction and fiction both together. Because so, see, so t- it's almost like two different sides of the brain working, yes, though, isn't it? And exactly. I'd find that really hard. It's like I can't – I find it really hard to work on two paintings at once, whereas I know yes. a lot of artists do, and I just can't because I feel like I can only focus on one thing. So, yeah, she's clever to be able to well, do you're, that. you're probably strongly right-brained then. Um, you know, when someone is very strongly right-brained, they – work in that right brain and mm. then like you said you turn it to the wall and yeah. when you come back to look at it again you turn it back around your left brain is looking at it and saying that's where that bit there yeah interesting that's, yeah that's the but it, it's um if someone's equally brained mm. so i think joe has got this kind of or maybe she's developed it i think you can yeah. she writes non-fiction about the uh writing and editing process in parallel with writing her thrillers and now she's just started a travel blog and and podcast podcast. yeah and so um but she understands very much about synapses and you can work the two at the same time so I thought that was quite fascinating it really is it really is Mm. I believe that um that's I read a book on um the brain and the synapses years ago and it was about um not really wanting to go too far off target here but it was about why teenagers are so horrible (laughs) Apparently, it's where all your life, when you're you're ba- when you when you're born, all of these um, electronic sort of um, signals are flashing across your brain all of the time in in various different places, and then apparently, what happens is when you reach teenagehood, they all just disconnect, and then what they do is then they 
they um, start connecting um, one by one to the place where they'll be permanently um, oh my goodness yeah permanently linked to mm-hmm. and while they're all disconnected that's why teenagers are up there most dangerous and and horrible because they apparently the last things that reconnect are the the part of the brain that's responsible for um caring about what other people think and you know worrying about what might happen if you know consequence that kind of thing but interestingly that's the last thing that will um uh link up when you're a teenager but it's the first thing to unlink when you get old so so which is why that some (laughs) thank you very much (laughs) no but no you're you're not old you're not old at all but you know oh yes but you know i am and i'm actually really happy to be old yeah i was watching binny Connolly the other day and he this was before he he got parkinson's poor darling but he was talking to pamela stevenson his wife and he said I love being an old guy. And and it's true. You know, I, I'm 71 and I think I am so lucky. I had that earlier life. Then I was married to a good man. Sadly, it didn't last forever. But I had two beautiful children who have grown up to be wonderful people and friends. And now I, I am free. When you said, but I'm old, I do think that these synapses that eventually start disconnecting um when you are much older i think that doesn't happen um nearly as quickly when you keep your brain active Mm. and (laughs) you do don't you you're absolutely right but that's true the research is showing that people rarely get dementia Mm. who who do creative stuff read write paint yeah, I've robots, read it time and time you know, again. Well, any of those things. But when, yeah. when Joe sent me back these seven coaching points on my fabulous fourth book, <laughs> I rang her up and said, um, well, I'm definitely not going to get dementia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. So obviously as a writer, you have to be quite self-disciplined because you've got to put the time in. Yeah. Um so what is your daily writing structure? What's your routine? Well, I'm good in the early morning. So um, I get up and um, every second day I do yoga stretches. And I've started to go to an evening yoga class as well, because that's really good. Because you've got to be careful sitting at the computer for too long. They say sitting is the, is the new smoking. Oh, really? Yeah. That 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 people are, um, and if you if you do a sitting job, you have to watch for thrombosis and stuff like that. So there's a bit of advertising. There's a thing called a revitive, R-E-V-I-T-I-V-E, and old people. It's a kind of electronic launch pad. You put your feet on it. It's plugged into the mains, and it exercises your legs while you're working. <laughs> I've seen those. Yeah, I, I think I, I need one of those. <laughs> oh well, I'm I total convert. Um, I also have a, a timer, um, yeah. or just an ordinary kitchen timer. So I do my stretches, then I sit down and I review. Quick look at the emails, but try not to. Then I review what I wrote yesterday, and I set the timer for for forty five minutes. And then I get up and walk about or make a cup of tea or come back or whatever. Then I do another 45 minutes. And maybe I'll go on for two to three hours. I don't do that every day because obviously there are other things too, but most days. Yeah. And um, and because I'm retired, I can do that the weekends as well. 
and and I love it. I love the learning. Um, it's fabulous. And I bet you will never forget how it felt to hold your very first published book in your hands. How was that? Quite right. So exciting, <laughs> so exciting. And yeah. especially, um, I mean, J.D. Smith did, did three beautiful covers that go, what I said to Joe was, I'd like to write three. I'd like to write a trilogy. Yeah. And she said, yep, can I help you with that. So um, Jane, Jane Smith did um, the three covers and they have the similar similar theme, the yeah. three first Penny Appleton ones. Yeah. And, um, and yes, to get, but although the, the first one I did was... <laughs> A non-fiction because how we how we got started was when I got back from New Zealand because I do drama and stuff like that and because I looked after Auntie Joy before she died and then I arranged her funeral and everything and I did the same with my mum and dad I knew a lot about funerals yeah because didn't you write a book on, yeah on so that. I became a funeral celebrant I trained as a funeral celebrant and I'm very sensitive and I've been through death and divorce and I like people and I've got great backlog of poems and stories and stuff. I'm a good listener. I'm a good facilitator. So I became a funeral celebrant and, but I didn't tell any of my family because again, a bit like Penny Appleton, I might not be any good at it and I'm a very private person. So I thought, well, I won't, I won't tell them, you know, until I'm a really successful funeral celebrant. And then one of our family members got, very very terminally ill and um I just thought I can't I can't tell anybody about this because you know there's our family member is terminally ill and I've just trained as a funeral celebrant I mean if it wasn't so tragic it would be funny wouldn't it yeah so Joe said why don't you write a book so again I thought I'm I can't put it out under my own name um so I took my initial J because that can be a man or a woman, can't it? J A Y. And then I wandered around and found a nice name. And I like the stationers. I love paper and pens and things. So I like Ryman's, the station. So I'm J Ryman. And we registered that name because it doesn't exist. And I wrote um, a funeral book, which brings in how to plan how to plan a funeral. A funeral, yes. And it's got some of my experiences. It's got some nice services. Is yeah. you know, um, and it brings in about one pound eighty two a month. <laughs> oh yeah, but it, you know, it, imagine the person reading it though. I mean, yes. it's so helpful because it's, you know, it's a it's a real. Um, when that happens, I, I wouldn't know where to start. You know, I, I just really would, simple. Yeah, yeah, I made it a really very simple book. And, and it's I'm, such a stressful time that that's what you need, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And yeah. you, you can so easily be taken in by people in funeral parlours and yeah. things, you know. Yeah. And then I'm writing a non-fiction at the moment because I lived in, when I was at college, it was the time of Greenham Common and the cruise missiles. Right. So nuclear war and nuclear stuff was was going. Then I lived in, San Diego is on the San Andreas Fault. I'd lived there for five years. New Zealand is in the ring of fire. So um, you, you've got nine lives, really. <laughs> no. What I've always been is a prepper. Yeah. 
so yeah. I and especially when you've got children and things. So yeah. I'm at the moment writing a just a really a, a distillation of 30 years of prepping. Really, mm. I'm not into the sense it's it's um, urban. It's going to be a very simple book of urban survival, like what to do if you are in a city. And for most of us, it won't be a terrorist-related activity. It will be something that turns the power off for three days. Right. So if if you have a power outage for three days, people can live on the food they've got, but if they haven't got clean water and there's no pumping station and the gas stations don't work and the supermarkets are not open because the money thing won't work and all the fridges and freezers have shut down and the hole in the wall doesn't work, um, you're going to start to get urban stress. So I have worked out, I'm going to write about it, I've started, how do you prep for five days of urban survival? Because at the end of five days, I heard the whole world's gone to head in a handbasket or... Um, communities will be established again you know there'll be yeah. standpipes and there'll be yeah. emergency electricity or you will have to evacuate if it was fire or something anyway that's what I'm working on with one half of my brain and I'm got another three penny appletons um in the other half so obviously now you've written several books so do you find that um each one has got easier to write yes. yeah yeah, that's true. I mean, the first three, obviously, I had my secret weapon, yeah. Joanna Penn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so, an ironic but, name, by the way, isn't it? Penn. And it's P-E-N-N, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. But then, um, you know, when I married Arthur Penn, yeah. and, and who's a very, very creative person as well, yeah. um, I loved his name. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided I to fell in it. love with him. He was yeah. an actor. Well, he was, yeah. he was a teacher as well, an art teacher. But he, the first time I ever saw him, he was on stage in a student review wearing a gorilla costume. So I actually couldn't see his face. But he's got the most fabulous voice. Like, do you know Alan Rickman? I know he's died now. But no. um, his voice was reckoned to be one of the most beautiful voices that you could ever listen to. Well, Arthur Penn's got that kind of voice. And I fell in love with his voice. And then when I met him, I fell in love with him too. But he's um, very creative. So my children get it from both sides. You know, they've, yeah. they've got yeah. um, that. And um, I can't remember. Oh, yes, Joanna Penn. So I loved his name. And then when I was pregnant with Joe, we talked about names. And if it was a girl it was either going to be joanna penn or samantha penn because we liked the n's that went with n yeah and when she was born he got to choose and it was joanna and uh, then for our son it was either going to be roderick penn or jonathan penn and he turned out to be roderick penn so and, and is he creative as well yes uh he's a writer teacher and now um, a very well-established professional photographer in Edinburgh. So Fantastic. Rod Penn Photography on, on the internet, the same as Joanna Penn. He's yeah. um, very gifted. So how important do you think it is to read if you want to be a writer? Oh, it's totally important, isn't it? Because we're, if words are your métier, if that's what you're working in, everything you read feeds into... Like I said about Jane Austen, in lots of ways, it's hard to read Jane Austen now because she's writing in a different era. It's almost impossible to read Charles yeah. Dickens. Yeah. yeah, I love his stories. So you've got to read. Um, and, and is it important that it's in the, re the same genre as no, what you write no. or just anything? I, I, I read all, all sorts of stuff, except I don't like 
you know, anything no. nasty. Or... Well, that, that's interesting, actually, isn't it? Because um, whilst you write sweet romance, <laughs> Joanna is completely different. She, you couldn't be more off it, opposite, could you? Because she, <laughs> she kind of writes horror. And, like, well, um, and she writes supernatural horror yeah, and it comes out It's like of... religious, religious um, yeah. thrillers, isn't it? And I know that sometimes you've actually found them quite hard to, to read. <laughs> Because I was actually listening, I was listening to you on her podcast, which I love, and um, and I knew then I wanted to talk to you myself, and uh, no, and and it was it really funny when I was listening to you both, and you know you'd said to her, I can't read this. What? Who did I? How are you, my daughter? (laughs) Is this my daughter wrote this? And it's not like they're dirty or disgusting. They're fascinating. The one I do like, I've got it here because it's probably my favourite. Um, is a thriller, but it's called Desecration. And it's um, the body of a young heiress is found within the Royal College of Surgeons. And this this is an amazing book. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever heard of, of a book called Perfume. No. Oh, you ought to read that. That's lovely. That's, um, it's written by a man called Patrick Suskind, S-U-S. K-I-N-D. And that is absolutely fascinating. And there's a film that Alan Rickman starred in. It never really happened much, but Perfume is the story of this man who who couldn't smell. And he became he's in, in France and he became an amazing perfumier. So that's amazing. But Joe's desecration reminds me of perfume. And um, that's it's not too horrid, really. Yeah. But the review says it's one of the most original. Who's this? David Morrell. Um, one of the most original mystery thrillers I've read in a long while. A topic of life and death, body and soul is harrowing, poignant, shocking and profound. And I found that of, of all her books, I did read that from cover yeah. to cover. Yeah. Um, but all of them have dimensions of um the weird <laughs> yeah i think um she's quite inspired by dan brown isn't she and i know that they're fast i mean i, I love that film wasn't it the yeah she's and, she just um, very cleverly well, her written podcasts are things like you know unique and very odd things to do in amsterdam yeah. and <laughs> but but like you as i said before i i, I love um a book that grips me um yeah. But I, I'm not keen on the whole, all the violence and all that. I, I, I'm squeamish anyway. And I, like I say, I think about things. But I, I've been reading um, three novels actually by an author called Sherry Lapino. Have you ever heard of her? No, I haven't. Oh, How do you spell the surname? Um, L A P E N A. And yeah. I think the first one was called The Couple Next Door. Then mm. the second one was called. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. But the third one was called An Unwanted Guest, which is what I'm reading now. But they, I think the second one was was fantastic. The first one, I was gripped from beginning to end, but it's really twists and turns. But what's interesting about it is that these are really, really gripping thrillers, but there's not a single bit of violence in them, even though ultimately they're all about a murder. (laughs) Well, I think that is so with Joe as well. Yeah. It's not gratuitous nastiness and stabbing and stuff. It's really very sophisticated. Yeah. I think the first one she wrote I thought was fascinating. And I believe at that time when she started, I edited for her because I was an inverted commas an English teacher. Yeah. And I think that was her first book. And um, I love that one too because it it has a lot of places we went together, like in the Mm. Arizona desert and things. But that that has the, the kind of idea that when Jesus was in the tomb 
after the crucifixion and the tomb, the stone to the tomb was rolled back, the disciples, the apostles, each took a piece of the stone and bored a hole through it and hung it on a on a leather thong around their neck. And then the Holy Ghost, the tongues of fire came down from heaven and touched each of them. And those stones then go on through history. And it's what happens when a organization tries to bring those stones back together again to cause religious chaos. Yeah. And um, I thought this, this is a brilliant idea. Yeah. And I, and I loved it when I edited it. And then she's got more weird since then. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I always think that to be a writer, personally, I think it's probably, um, I don't know if easier is the right word, but you're probably better to start writing when you are older, I would have thought, than when you're very young, because obviously you've got a lot more experience to draw from. So a lot of our listeners, particularly our listeners I know, will be thinking, oh, I've left it too late to write. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I hear it so often. But I actually think it's the opposite. I actually think the, when you leave it late, it, you can be a better, you can start off a better writer. So what advice would you give to those of our listeners who have been meaning, and I put that in quotes, to write a book, but they just haven't got around to it yet and they're worried that they've left it too late? Mm. No, it's never too late, is it? Because this is a creative journey. So if you say, well, I've got this idea in my head and I'm going to start, you get, you start, you know, and you start writing it, typing it. Whatever. I mean, I like, I like to write in fountain pen. Um, Joanna's husband gave me a most beautiful fountain pen. And I often go to a cafe and will sit with my fountain pen and lovely, lovely paper and just put my pen on the paper and it starts to write. Something comes out of my head, down my arm, and it starts to write. And then later on, you're tired and it's 45 minutes and you close it up. So if you get yourself a lovely book and you start writing, you can't edit anything if you haven't written it. So if somebody's thinking, you know, I really would like to write a book, I've been meaning to, but I haven't got around to it yet. Firstly, you can't do it if you're being creative in a thousand other ways. So if you're bringing up children, that's going to be hard. If you've got a job that takes all of you, that's hard. Or it might be a rest if you're going to write um, just fiction. But don't don't make it like I've got to write to make a book out of it. Write for joy, write for pleasure write so that you can read it back to yourself and go, yeah, hey, hey, I remember that. That's a, a lovely memory. And that notebook you were talking about, actually, I think that would be a good idea for a writer to carry around all the time, wouldn't it? Anyway, just because yeah. if they happen to be inspired at the most bizarre moment they've just they've got it there write it mm. down and then it doesn't go out of their head because I've had that before I've had um you know inspiration for paintings come into my head and I've been out somewhere and I haven't got a pen and by the, by the time I've got home I forgot what it was yes that's but, right and you know, sometimes you wake up in the morning but you know another good thing if you're not a not someone who can easily write or you haven't got it is to carry a dictaphone around with you yeah so I've got a sony dictaphone which has a pc link and I keep that in my bag all the time because I can, might be somewhere and I see something and I think, oh, my goodness, like a, you know, a cherry right at the moment, the cherry blossom trees. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And you just talk into your dictaphone. Then when you get back, you plug in the electronic thingy and it transcribes it using Dragon software onto the screen. And then you edit that. Yeah. And then you file it in a file, you know, like ideas or whatever. And that's writing. You're 
you're creating and you're writing. So it doesn't have to be a big deal of, oh, I've got to sit down and write 50,000 words. It may be that you do it as you go along. So I keep a spiral bound journalist's notebook in my bag all the time too, and three or four pens down the bottom. And, and sometimes I was on the bus the other day and there was this immaculate little lady, sounds condescending, I don't mean that. She was small like my grandma, but her hair um, was beautifully back in a chignon that you would you know, the older ladies had, like yeah. my nan. Her, her dress was, the way she was dressed was stylish for her age. She was cool, and yet she must have probably been in her 80s. So when she got off the bus, I got my pad out and just wrote down the description of her, and she's become a character called Patricia in one of my books because that's who Patricia is. She's immaculate. Well, that's lovely sure. and, and it's a fine example of um, getting inspiration from the people around you, isn't it? So where can people find your books? Where can they find out a bit more about you? Um, they can find the books on Amazon and we also have a website, the Penny Appleton website. Well, we'll be putting links to your um, books on our show notes, of course. Well, that's so. nice. And also, I think your people can put in comments to you, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, if you if people liked me doing this then um they could ask some, ask you some questions and we could do another one another time absolutely or when i've got the non-fiction done the preppers well, book you know i could come on and talk about preppers couldn't i you have an open invitation if you want to come back on and chat to us we i could have talked to you for hours so um, you're lovely thank you for letting me <laughs> grab it on i had a poem to end up oh please share it's not it's not mine this is for inspiration to all of your listeners because sometimes you just are very despairing about the whole creativity thing so this is mary oliver wild geese i'm sure you've heard it before mary oliver wild geese you do not have to be good you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. And meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely... The world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. I cannot think of a better way to end on this podcast than that. How lovely, absolutely lovely and so appropriate, I think. Well, you've really inspired me and I'm sure you've inspired our listeners. And once again, Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, you too. I'm I'm so glad we finally (laughs) got to talk. (laughs) Never mind, we did it. (laughs) And if lots of people write in and say, we'd like you to do another one with her and we'd like to talk about this or this, happy to do it again. Be fun. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much again and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. And you too. Take care then. Bye. 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 Bye.
Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, perhaps you'd like to share it and leave a review for us on iTunes. 